Welcome to Work Better, the podcast where we think about work and ways to make it better. I'm your host, Chris Congdon, Editor-in-Chief of Work Better Magazine. Today's conversation is one we're really excited to share with you. And in truth, we may have sent one too many emails to Eric Kleinenberg asking him to join us because we really wanted to talk to him. He's a professor of social science and director of the Institute for Public Knowledge at NYU. But his book, Palaces for the People, and the research behind it was really foundational to how we've been re-envisioning the workplace here at Steelcase thinking about how we can make it more like the best neighborhoods and communities where we live. And that was what Eric's work really centered on. Eric joined us from his car, but don't worry, he pulled over first. And he talked to us about things like loneliness, libraries, and lingering. So stay with us after we're done talking with Eric, because my colleague, Susana Cantu, in Monterey, Mexico, is going to join us. And she's an architect and designer who helps us connect Eric's research and insights to the way we're designing workspaces differently. Thank you for joining us, Eric. It's good to be here. Well, wherever here is, I don't even know where here is anymore. (laughs) Well, let's talk about that a little bit more because your work has been really a strong influence in a lot of our thinking about the future of the workplace and the future of offices, particularly your work around social infrastructure. So we're going to want to talk about that as we move forward. But, you know, I've talked to a lot of people about your ideas, and I've shared a lot of stories. And one of the stories that I've shared with people is about two neighborhoods that you studied in Chicago that went through a really catastrophic weather event. And I was wondering if you could just tell us that story in your own words. Thank you for asking that question. The, the first book I wrote was a book about a heat wave in Chicago that happened in 1995 and killed more than 700 people. And when I started work on that project, I drew a map of who died and where they lived, you know, which neighborhoods were most affected. Mm-hmm. And I noticed something popped up right away that no one had really seen before. And that, that is that the map looked more or less like what you would expect it to look like in terms of uh, which neighborhoods were most affected. It wasn't super interesting even though it was politically important to say that the neighborhoods that were most affected were poor and segregated and suffered from a lot of problems. But what I saw that people hadn't seen is that there were a set of neighborhoods that were paired, these matching pairs where you had two neighborhoods next to each other, same demography, you know, same age structure, same uh, level of poverty, same identity uh, for the most part. And And yet, despite all their similarities, they had dramatically different death rates. Um, I I called attention to a couple pairs of neighborhoods. One pair is a neighborhood called Englewood on the south side and and the neighborhood next to it uh, called Auburn Gresham that's right next door. Mm -hmm. And um, again, if you looked at them on paper, you'd think that they were were identical kinds of places, that they'd have very similar experiences. Uh, But in, in reality, what happened is that Englewood wound up with a death rate that was 10 times higher than Auburn Gresham, and I, I wanted to understand why. Wow, you know, why was the, the, exactly the right answer? It kind of was didn't seem to make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, the right response, right response. But what happened when I started spending time in the neighborhoods is that I, I noticed that, despite the similar numbers, the neighborhoods were different in some really important ways. Englewood, as a neighborhood, 
felt really bombed out. It had a lot of abandoned homes. It had a lot of empty lots. Uh, it, it had very little uh, kind of street life, uh, a few parks, playgrounds, neighborhood libraries, you know, community institutions. It, in the 1990s, it was a really depleted place. Mm-hmm. And Auburn Gresham, even though it was right across the street, didn't have those abandoned properties. It didn't have empty lots. It had a whole set of small commercial outlets, the you know little parks and a big church that, that provided a lot of services. And I came to think of the difference between those two neighborhoods as differences in the social infrastructure. Um, Englewood had a depleted social infrastructure. Auburn Gresham had a really robust and dynamic one. And, and when I say social infrastructure, what I'm referring to specifically is the set of physical places that shape our interactions, physical gathering places like uh, a good sidewalk or a neighborhood library or a playground. Um, The neighborhoods in Chicago that were very poor and very vulnerable, but also had strong social infrastructure did much better than the neighborhoods in Chicago that were poor, but didn't have social infrastructure. And I came to realize that, this thing, social infrastructure, it's, it's not a luxury good. It's essential for a good city, a good neighborhood. It's, in a crisis, the thing that makes the difference between life and death. Most of us think about infrastructure in a traditional sense. We think about transportation systems and bridges and roads and those kinds of things. But I'd love you to talk a little bit more about social infrastructure. Like, what was it that defined those kinds of places? What what did they do that's very different than when we think about traditional infrastructure? Well, you know, social infrastructure is not a metaphor. It's, it's just as real as the infrastructure for water or for power or for communications. And the idea, you know, which I, which I write about in this um, book, Palaces for the People, is that if you invest in social infrastructure, you know, if you, if you design it well, if you build it well, if you maintain it, if you program it, you'd create an environment, a physical environment that encourages social life. It, it, in a neighborhood like Englewood or Auburn Gresham in Chicago, good social infrastructure will draw people out of their homes and into gathering places where they will encounter one another and potentially provide, you know, learn about each other and learn to provide each other with support. You know, know who's, who's going to be in trouble when there's a heat wave and, and who they don't have to worry about. If you don't have good social infrastructure, it makes you much more likely to kind of hunker down at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, you spend time in front of your screen because why would you go out into a public realm that doesn't encourage other people to, to be there? Yeah. And so, um, so social infrastructure refers to this set of you know, physical places uh, that truly determines the quality of uh, our public realm. So why do I need a physical structure to do that, given all the technology that I have available to me. So, you know, you mentioned that if I don't have uh, social infrastructure, I might be inclined to hunker down on my screen. So why do I need the physical places? Like, why do I need my neighborhood, you know, street life? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm betting that um, everybody who's listening to this could answer that question by referring back to their own experience in the pandemic these last couple of years. I mean, thank goodness we had FaceTime and Zoom and Skype and all these amazing technologies that allowed us to connect with each other when we were quarantined at home and locked down and gathering physically wasn't safe or possible for so many people. But 
If I told you right now that uh, I just found out while we were on this podcast that you know, we found a new variant of the coronavirus, mm-hmm. new variant of COVID-19, and this one is going to be significantly more lethal than the ones before and also more transmissible. And the only way for us to deal oh, with it would be... Don't even say that. Well, but, but, but it answers your question, right? Because if I said, yeah. now we're really going to have to go lock down at home again, and we're going to do it for a year this time, and we're not going to be able to gather together, uh, we're not, not going to be able to do it indoors, and we're not even going to be able to do it much outdoors. But don't worry, because you're going to have your technology, you're going to have your screen, you know, you can connect with each other as much as you want on your screen. I think you'd want to tear your hair out. Probably, <laughs> probably worse. And the reason is because you know from your experience in the early part of the pandemic just how insufficient that way of living is. Yep. And you know from having lived through the pandemic in the hardest stages how much we need to be together and how much more satisfying it is to, to be with other people physically how much easier it is to build a relationship, to provide support, to feel some sense of joy, uh, you know, in our companionship with one another. And, and I think we all are aware at this point, if we weren't before that, yes, it's nice to have technology and screens as a supplement to our face-to-face interactions, but it certainly is not a substitute. Yeah. There's a great debate, of course, that's been going on throughout the pandemic. And we're still trying to figure it out, I think, in terms of work and in terms of working in an office. Because there's a lot of people who would say, eh, do I really need to physically be with my colleagues? I'm doing just fine. My productivity is fine. So when we started having this conversation, I thought a lot about your work and thinking about social infrastructure. And like, what that might do for us in terms of having people feel like this is a place where I want to come and I want to be with my colleagues. And I'm just curious, what do you think about the idea of social infrastructure in the workplace or in an office? Like, what would that be? I think it's essential. And I think some offices have it and some offices don't have it. And, you know, for instance, I I run an institute at New York University where I teach. It's called the Institute for Public Knowledge. And when it's going well, it works as a kind of oasis for people on campus, you know, for faculty, for students, uh, for people in the community who want to come and engage ideas. Uh, when we are uh, full and active and busy, you know, we have a blend of uh, gathering places where people can socialize with each other. You know, the kind of water cooler writ large. Um, those are you know so, small seminar rooms and meeting rooms. Those are some open spaces with big tables mm-hmm. um, where people can sit and have meals together or just catch up on things. We have small working tables. Um, we have private offices where people can go and write mm-hmm. and and not have to be with other people because we you know you don't necessarily want to work in an open space all the time. Um, and we have a very kind of open door policy where the institute is accessible to all kinds of people, you know, in the university and outside the university, professors as well as students. And we encourage people to come and spend time there. And when it's working, it makes the work day more interesting. It means, you know, people Mm -hmm. can engage each other. They can um, have spontaneous conversations about things that they're interested in. They can follow up on the idea of something presented in a seminar. Um, You know, sometimes we'll, we'll have events and then we have, time afterwards where people can have a drink or eat you know the, the food and drink is a is a nice yeah. way to convene people together but if you if you have to eat it by yourself in a single cell uh it's very different than if you're eating it or drinking it with other people in a shared place and so you know offices 
around the world, uh, you know, we're, we're getting adapted before the pandemic hit to be, to, to work better as social spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? Because some people believe that, uh, collaboration works better when people can be together formally and informally. Um, some people believe that, uh, people enjoy work more and are happier at work and do better work when, uh, they can be around other people who's, you know, who's, uh, company they uh, they like. Um, you know, some people believe that it's only when you have a shared environment and people can be together that you can develop something like a workplace culture, and that that helps people learn about the organization that they're in, learn the values of the organization, learn the practices of the organization, learn the principles of the organization, and often it makes the job more exciting and compelling. And so. I think one of the really interesting things that happened in the pandemic is, you know, we learned that in the United States, especially people were spending way too much time in the office and we're feeling like office culture wasn't flexible and open enough. And there are ways that we can be productive when we're at home or working remotely sometimes. But if you push that too far, you know, then you can't have a shared office culture. You can't have a shared work life. You don't make the connections, the forms of collaboration, creativity. Uh, that you get when you have a a healthy office environment built around good social infrastructure. And so it's completely relevant for the office. I love this because we've been talking a lot about this idea about, you know, what if the workplace drew inspiration from, like, we thought a lot about the neighborhood story that you told and about, you know, thriving neighborhoods, neighborhoods that have that great vibe and the great street life and the energy and how that could translate to work. And one of the things that you've talked about a lot is the role of different public places, like the library in particular. And I just wonder, like, what is it that a library does that you could say, like, if you were going to have the version of a public library at work, what would that experience be like? Well, I mean, you know, the one of the things about the library that's so special about the public library is that it's built to be open and accessible and welcoming to a wide range of people. Um, And Mm -hmm. one of the nice things about the library is that you encounter people who are not exactly like you. And of course, offices work according to different principles. Now, there is some really good research showing that in many, not all industries, uh, the workplace is significantly more diverse than the neighborhood where people live. And people do have a chance in some office cultures to interact with, befriend, collaborate with people who have different ethnic, cultural, religious, uh, racial backgrounds. And uh, often they have interactions with people who have different political ideologies. And so there is a, a way in which the office can be a meeting ground for people who might not otherwise interact. And you know, I don't know if everybody shares this view, but it feels to me like we are living in a time of unsustainable polarization and divisiveness, and we need to find some way of relearning how to be together without killing each other. So you can create an office environment that has some of the, the inclusivity of the library. You can create places where people can explore. You have to build a corporate culture that allows people that time for exploration and have creativity and some some offices do that others don't and and libraries are interesting in that they're, they're different kinds of spaces that are programmed differently that 
the, mm -hmm. the rooms encourage people to do certain kinds of activities, whether it's reading a newspaper or periodical or looking for a book or watching a video or using a makerspace um, or, you know, sitting and having coffee. Offices similarly can have rooms that are programmed to, to encourage different kinds of activities. And so I think an office can't replicate the most beautiful thing about a public library, but it can you know, definitely borrow some of the better ideas. I love my local library because I feel like it draws in this really diverse group of people. It's like this magnet that pulls all kinds of people together. And, you know, having that experience at work is really something that I, th I think a lot of people, you know, have been missing, that kind of connection with other people. So, Eric, I want to go back a ways, back before you wrote Palaces for the People, because you also wrote a book, Going Solo, uh, I thought was really interesting because, you know, you were looking at this major social trend of, you know, people choosing to live alone. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that, because I want to connect that to this conversation that we've just been having about social infrastructure. So can you tell people a little bit about your research there? Yeah, I mean, that, that book actually was born from my book about the heat wave, which was a story about people being very isolated, you know, socially isolated, hundreds of people dying uh, alone at home in a kind of a sad and tragic way that reflected something about the isolation of our time. And I started doing work on a book that I had tentatively titled, as you said, Alone in America, because I thought it was going to be about the rising isolation of Americans. And what I learned when I started doing research on this is that it's, it's definitely true that Americans uh, were becoming much more likely to live alone, more people living alone in the United States than ever before in our history, more people living alone around the world than ever before. Uh, but the surprise from the research I did, which involved you know hundreds of interviews and analysis of a lot of survey data about our social lives, is that on average, people who live alone are actually quite socially active. You know, in fact, surprisingly, people who live alone in the United States are more likely to spend time with friends and neighbors than people who are married. They're more likely to volunteer in civic organizations. They're more likely to go to restaurants and clubs and bars and music venues and the gym. So living alone is not the same as being socially isolated. And in fact, one of the things I discovered at the end of this project is that it's really our interdependence that makes our independence possible. Mm -hmm. And what has made living alone more viable, you know, in addition to the fact that you know, women gain tremendous power to control their own lives and their own bodies, but so too did the rise of the public realm where people were able to live by themselves but be very social with others. And you had said something that struck me as quite interesting is that um, people who live alone particularly in urban areas, tend to treat like the city is like their living room, if I got that straight. Yeah, I mean, the, the apartment is, you know, for a lot of people who live alone who are socially active, the, the apartment is kind of like a launching pad. And the, the urban neighborhood is like a living room. You know, you, you, you get a place of your own, not because you want to spend all of your time sitting home alone, but because you want to be close to things that are important to you. And so the neighborhood matters and the people around you matter and the amenities matter. And in fact, you know, what I, what I saw in the real estate market when I was working on this book is a lot of uh, real estate developers that were building, you know, new developments in central urban areas 
trying to go after this market of young professionals, specifically by building you know projects that had slightly smaller domestic private space, but much more generous shared amenities, the coffee mm. bars and computer rooms and exercise areas and film screening areas and all these things that we maybe associate with like a, a college campus. But it turns out people like that kind of social programming and want it mm-hmm. even as they get older. And, and you know what else? In that book, I read a little bit about my, my grandmother who was living in an assisted living facility at the time, and she was in her 90s. But the assisted living facility was set up so that she could also have all of these social interactions in shared spaces. Mm-hmm. And the units were a little smaller than they might be in other places. But, but the point of being there was to, to have companionship. And, and all of this is an example of social infrastructure, right? Very much. It's, a, it's about building a, a, a way of living, you know, uh, building places that encourage uh, lingering, gathering. Yep. Uh, you know, I, I wrote in Palaces for the People that you know, we, we like efficiency in all kinds of ways in American life. But when it comes to social life, efficiency is really our enemy. When you build systems that just allow people to move through them without friction, right? Just getting your thing done and moving on to the next place so you can get home faster. I mean, I want that when I'm driving somewhere uh, or when I'm on public transit. I don't want to sit and you know linger on the subway. Uh, but for more social occasions, the lingering really is important and too much efficiency can be a bad thing. Yeah. I, I love the idea of thinking about places where we linger and where we want to linger. Well, think about you know, people you know who take a trip to Europe or to Latin America or Asia, and they come back and say, oh, it's so amazing. You know, there's this whole street life and you sit in a cafe and you sit outside for hours and people just, they hang out in the square or the Zocalo. There's not really the sense that you have to, you know, buy your Big Mac and get out in 30 minutes. Uh, you right. know, there's no, no loitering signs. The whole point of going to a bar or restaurant in Italy is to loiter. The whole point of going to the Zocalo in Mexico is to is to loiter. You want to sit around because that encourages a kind of sociability uh, sure. that has value. And, and it's not something I think that we have um, supported enough in American culture and not something that we value as much as we should because it really affects our quality of life. Well, you know, I might get in trouble with a number of business leaders if I start encouraging loitering yeah. at work. But uh, on the other hand, I do have found that it is um, profoundly productive in a way that maybe people don't think about productivity, but it's profoundly productive when you do have those moments of serendipitous interaction where you get a chance to actually talk to somebody that you might not schedule a meeting with, or they might not be in your regular network, but people that you see and end up talking to over a coffee. So you do end up lingering a little bit in some of those kinds of places and having conversations that you might not have otherwise had. So it feels like that's a really important thing. Yeah. I I was saying, you know, in in the palaces book, I, I write about being a soccer dad and spending my weekends, you know, hour after hour after hour on these fields full of people who I would never otherwise encounter in my life. Uh And, you know, sometimes I want to get on my phone and talk to the people who are in my family or my close friendship group who I don't get to see enough. But inevitably, I wind up engaging all kinds of people who I would never speak to uh, in a different universe. You know, we're, we're there because we love our children. We like this game. 
and we're on a field where we're going to be hanging out for many hours <laughs> watching a game and and we strike up you know relationships and we do it more when we go for lunch after the match or when we take a trip somewhere for the weekend and you know i think there's a reason why so many americans uh, who go to residential colleges build these relationships there that last a long time and and have trouble building those relationships when they get into later stages in their lives because they have more unstructured time and because they uh, have a set of gathering places where they can spend that social unstructured time engaging other people and having surprising things happen. It's hard to do that when your whole life is scheduled and organized and everything is, uh, you know, uh, efficient and, and, and a routine. Yeah, I think the the half hour video meeting is really taking its toll on a lot of people. Uh, before I let you go today, Eric, and this has been a great conversation. I'm so grateful for you taking the time. Do you have any last parting thoughts if you're talking to a bunch of people who are thinking about work or thinking about the workplace and the office? Any last thing you want to say to any of us? Well, I, I mean, I just, I think, you know, ideally the office is a compelling and exciting place where we can go, not just to get work done, but also to you know, generate new ideas and to and to recharge and build relationships. And when you work in a good office, you know, you feel all those things and you enjoy going there. And when you don't work in a good office, you'd much rather just be at home on your own private mm -hmm. screen. And so, especially now when the option of working remotely has emerged and has become a demand for many people, at least some of the time, I think uh, it's important for every organization to think about how to make the place work well. You know, how do you draw people into the workspace? How do you recruit people who aren't already there by making it feel like a compelling job? How do you keep people who are in a job growing and developing, feeling good about what they're doing? How do you make sure that the work is as good as it possibly can be and not just the reflection of what's in one individual's solitary mind? And the answer to all those questions is, you know, you have to build an office environment that's welcoming and open and accessible and uh, that makes people feel you know, turned on and, and engaged. And it's striking to me um, that some organizations really get that and do it. And we've all seen the images of the, you know, the big tech company office complexes in Silicon Valley where there's soccer fields and swimming pools and massage rooms and cafeterias with free food and snack bars and, you know, all these wonderful things. Unfortunately, not for every employee, just for the higher level people. But that's also a podcast for another day. <laughs> um, and we've also seen the kind of old-fashioned offices that are just rows of people working in solitary cubes. Yeah. And uh, I don't think you can really have a good office uh, today without thinking about social infrastructure. I, I, if you do, you're missing an opportunity to make the experience of working there uh, much better for everyone. Yeah. Well, I would just like to say to our listeners that I think Eric's work on social infrastructure is given us so much to think about. First of all, if you haven't seen your neighbors or haven't gone to your local library, I would make sure to get out there and, and make some of those connections right at home. And if you haven't gone into the office in a while or you haven't even thought about the office as a source of social infrastructure or social connections. You know, I think Eric has given us a lot to think about, about how can we use place um, to help people not only feel those connections, but to feel part of a community at work. 
So thank you so much for spending some time with us today, Eric. It really has been a pleasure to talk with you. For me as well. Thank you. And uh, I'm expecting to get some really nice Steelcase bookshelves very soon. <laughs> it's going to show up in the mail. I just want them to show up. What is that giant bookshelf doing, honey? <laughs> I didn't order that. Oh, you don't know about my podcast life. <laughs> oh, well, we can figure something out there, Eric, anyway. <laughs> okay. Talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you so much for taking the time. And I promise to stop bugging you now, but you did mention podcasts in the future. So, you know, we might come back to you one of these days. You never know. All right. Thanks, Eric. Take care. Thank you again. Bye-bye. So I'd like to welcome my colleague, Susana Cantu. She lives in Monterey, Mexico, and she's also an architect and designer with Steelcase. And her work is about reimagining spaces to be able to support how work is changing. And she and I have worked together for a while on this concept of designing the workplace to be more like the communities in which we live. And so we've read Eric's book and he's been a big inspiration for us. I was so excited to talk to her as soon as we did this interview. So Susanna, thank you for joining me for a little while. Thank you, Chris. I'm happy to be here. This is a super interesting topic that I'm happy to participate on. So I really loved, and I guess you might love too, when, you know, Eric was talking about this concept of social infrastructure, because, you know, I know that's influenced us a lot. And what he says is that when he uses that phrase, he's talking about a set of physical places that shape our interactions physical gathering places like a good sidewalk or a neighborhood library or a playground. And what I found really intriguing was when he said, I came to realize that social infrastructure is not a luxury, but it's actually essential for a a good city. So I'm just curious, you know, like when we translate his thinking into the workplace, like what do you think is, um, you know, social infrastructure going to look like when we get into the workplace? First of all, I'm super happy that you touched on that point because I think that phrase Eric mentioned about physical places shaping our interactions is super powerful. And I think that in the past couple of years, we've seen shifts within the design practice. And one of the things that I believe have changed the most is the way we plan the workplace as well as the diversity of spaces within So social infrastructure in the workplace could be all of those spaces where people come together and gather. Think, for example, of the work cafe or a shared social area or any other setting that brings people together and creates community by encouraging connection. Uh, Something that I also think is very important is that in the past, these spaces were perceived as nice to have or even an afterthought, but today they are essential and a key piece of a successful workplace experience. I think you're so right that you think about the workplaces that feel more vibrant and alive. Those kinds of spaces are just, they feel natural. Like They feel like they're just a natural part of the workplace, not an afterthought, right? Exactly. And even if we think of some examples of social infrastructures within our community, you know, Eric used the example of the library and how it is super open, accessible, and welcoming to a wide range of people. If we think of that in terms of workplace and how we're thinking a lot about neighborhood design uh, and how, well, neighborhoods are designed to support both teams and individuals and their own needs, what's 
I think very interesting is that it's not a size one size fits all. It's a much more catered experience. So uh, neighborhoods accommodate different work styles. And just like Eric mentioned again about the library, there's like different routines and different people that come to the space. So with neighborhood planning, you come across different people from different teams and they support also both the physical and the remote presence, which I think is something we've seen has changed a lot in the past couple of years. So overall, designing neighborhoods provides uh, more opportunities for an integrated experience versus a siloed one. I think you're so right in pointing out that libraries have this important role. And I think sometimes when we talk about it from a work perspective, we think about quiet places, which are important. But the point you made that I think is as important is that you have just a diverse group of people that come to libraries that use it. And so the kinds of interactions that you have with people at libraries are really important and meaningful places for people to connect with each other. It's not just a place to be quiet. (laughs) Exactly. And then I keep thinking about all of these other spaces within our communities, like uh, parks or playgrounds where the entire point of being there is to linger and just stay there and like kind of enjoy the experience without the rush of like you need to be to another uh, place right away. I think that's something super interesting that Eric was also touching on. Yeah, I was dying to talk to you about that because I thought this idea when he was he was talking about, you know, that maybe sometimes some spaces are almost too efficient that you just, you know, you go on, you do your thing, you get your work done. And of course, we all want to be productive. But I thought the idea of designing places that you would intentionally linger was a, a really new way of thinking about that, that the maybe we need some friction right? Yes, I think this is such an interesting idea. Um, The way I think of it, there are spaces that are a destination and others that are more transitional. So some spaces are primarily meant for focus, others to connect and collaborate with others. So I do believe that you want to have the efficiency or have efficiency be present in terms of having a space that supports your needs, either that are like focusing, collaborating, socializing, but also there is so much value and productivity in building relationships and connecting with others at the workplace. And sometimes those connections happen serendipitously. So as you can see, that goes back to the diversity of spaces and incorporating all of these other typologies besides workstations as people tend to gravitate to spaces that psychologically feel more communal. Uh, One example of this that I can think of right now is a little bit silly, but that office phrase of talking by the water cooler. So in a sea of workstations, people will meet and talk by a coffee station or any other support space nearby. So this is why this is like, I believe workplace design plays an enormous part uh, here from the way the layout and adjacencies are thought of, as well as the products and settings that are chosen because people are not going to linger if there is not a space for them to do so. And those spaces that bring people together and foster relationships, in the end, make up your community and provide a united sense of belonging. I think, like, as an added value, it's a great way to get to know the culture of the organization, but also to get to know the people that are working with you. I think you're making a really good point about the idea that people are are psychologically drawn towards spaces that are more communal. 
And maybe we haven't thought about that. We've been very busy, you know, figuring out our standards and how many people we can fit and how many square feet. But this idea of being able to create these these communal spaces that people are drawn to, it's a really good insight. So thank you for that. And Susie, thank you so much. Like I've just really loved having a chance to talk about this and to be able to share that conversation with Eric with you. So thanks for being here. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for being here with us for this episode of Work Better. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at steelcase.com slash subscribe to sign up for weekly updates on research insights and design ideas delivered to your inbox. For next week, think about this question. Can a robot take your job? We talked with Kevin Roos, who's a New York Times technology writer based in Silicon Valley, and he's the author of a book called Future Proof. He has a really interesting take on how we can bring more of our humanity to work, and he tells us about a small bookstore in Oakland, California, that managed to thrive despite all the market forces working against it. But that's next week, so please join us. Thanks again for being here, and we hope your day at work tomorrow is just a little bit better. This episode of Work Better is produced by Rebecca Cherbowski. Creative art direction is by Aaron Ellison and Emily Cowdery. Technical support is from Mark Caswell and Jose Jimenez. Digital publishing is by Aureli Ariano and Jordan Marks. And editing and sound mixing by Soundpost Studios.